Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. To Creative me. visualization that really set me free. I love actioning. Very specific action groups. Welcome back. Welcome back to season two. My name is Anne Penner, and I'm an associate professor of theater. I'm Katie McRae. I'm an associate professor of theater. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to our fourth episode of Season 2. We are discussing inner monologue and modes of cognition. My name is Anne Penner. I'm Kateri McRae. So why are we focusing on inner monologue and modes of cognition? So we want to define what we mean by this phrase, inner monologue. I think it means different things to different people. It certainly has changed its definition the more I think about it and has become more dynamic and more generative. (laughs) And we want to make it a practical tool and resource for our actors. I've been thinking the past uh, week or so about this word transform or even translate. We sometimes use that word. And I think sometimes when we think about that the actor's job is to transform into character, we think about external transformation. We think about mm. how posturally and gesturally and physically or vocally uh, we, they make these external transformations. I think we're, to what today was partly about is the idea of transforming your thinking process, transforming the inner life of you from actor into character. And sometimes that's enough. Sometimes you don't need to make that many adjustments externally, or sometimes the inner work that you're doing will then, of course, inform the external. And I just think it's important that transform can mean that as well and not just the external transformation. I think that's a really important point. And like the auditioning episode, episode number one, We want to, over the course of the episode, talk about what we can and can't control when it comes to inner monologue and also ultimately sort of how much of it we want to control and how much we can leave up to to spontaneity and the truth of the moment. And also, finally, what are the best practices when using this tool? And I think it's really excellent that we're going to, again, be focusing on what you can control and what you can't because from a psychological standpoint one of the biggest distinctions between these sort of modes of cognition or another way, if you're a little bit more neuroscience focused to think about this is modes of processing, the way that your brain processes information, the two different modes of processing that I'll be talking about really differ on the degree to which they're thought to be part of control systems in the brain or part of these more sort of natural responses to the environment, the systems that sort of handle that aspect of of the way that our brain processes information. So that lines up really well. So what the inner monologue is not, or at the very least what I used to think it was, and is one very limited way of thinking of it, but I think there are a lot more interesting ways. Um, It's called a monologue, and I think when we think about monologue, we think of a set bunch of words on a piece of paper, set sentences that we memorize and we always say uh, in the same order. So when we think of inner monologue, we might think, hey, this is what the character says. I think this thought here, and then I must think this thought here, and then I must think this thought here. That's an okay jumping off point for creating more dynamic ways of, of uh, character cognition, let's say. But the, it's problematic because thinking happens much more quickly than that. It, thinks mu- it works much more associatively. It works much more spontaneously. And it isn't set um, in, in that way. 
Definitely. And it's not as though we are all, we are always narrating our own inner experience all the time, right? There's like this sort of assumption when you think about traditional inner monologue. So this comes up a lot in movies where one of the devices is that you can read other people's thoughts, right? Like, so where there's one character walking along and then you see other people and instead of hearing silence, if their mouth is closed, you actually hear them like speaking to themselves inside their own head, right? Yeah. Which is just not exactly quite how we all experience our day-to-day moments. Right. Instead, the way we want to talk about inner monologue is it's the character's ever-changing relationship to their objects of attention. And let me define objects of attention. It's a Stanislavski term. It is anything or person or idea or even image or want... (laughs) that either actually exists on stage or in the literal, tangible world that the character's negotiating or is existing inside of them, is that they're thinking about. So, for example, on my walk over here to Katiri's office, I was literally thinking about the tea cup I was holding in my hand. I was in relationship to some of the cars and maybe judging the bright yellowness of that car. I was in relationship to the weather. I was in relationship to the intangible uh, meeting, uh, this recording that was about to happen uh, with Kateri. I was maybe thinking about my physical state, being a little under the weather, etc. Those are just many examples of my brain free associating through various objects of attention. I wanted to make sure to mention a book written by a professor at Michigan State University. His name is Rob Rosnowski, and he has written a few books, and I had the opportunity to talk with him. He's wonderful, and he has a book called uh, Inner Monologue in Acting, and I encourage you to take a look at it. Um, I was able to read at least some of it before today and and found it fascinating. And you were saying, too, useful, too. I had some practical... It did. It, it dropped. It, it, it at the beginning organizes inner monologuing into sort of inner monologuing with your id, with your ego, with your super ego, and then cool. it has a bunch of different exercises in terms of how to use inner monologue, which I found really useful. Very cool. I think about it psychologically, and Kateri is going to get much more nuanced. Is that the inner monologue can be in relationship to your id and your ego? So the id is the more right, the more visceral and uncensored, sensual parts of yourself. Like, oh, I'm so hungry, I really need a brownie right now, or I really have to go to the bathroom, <laughs> or if you're if your character's uh, extremely attracted to the other to their to their the other character on stage, the ego side of things is maybe the more top down way of you being in relationship to ideas rather than sort of uh, visceral things. Yeah, and you know, current. Psychologists, especially those like myself who identify as sort of more experimental psychologists who are really um, trying to follow the scientific method to determine um, the best way to sort of carve out psychological space, have a complicated relationship with Freud um, because... On the one hand, Freud was a foundational thinker in uh, sort of theories of modern psychology. Freud first introduced the idea that there might be these two kinds of opposing forces that have very different qualities, one being very uncontrolled, animalistic, primitive, um, and potentially unconscious. That comes from Freud, too. Um, And the other one being very refined, very educated, very logical, um, very controlled, and very purposeful. Um, That theory is really important and lots and lots of that that theory sort of remains in psychology. 
On the other hand, Freud had a lot of other things to say about how people worked, and he also had a lot of things to say about therapeutic processes and what made them um, do what they do, not all of which have stood up to the test of time and the test of these more rigorous scientific experiments. So especially in the domain of clinical psychology, there is a general attitude, there are exceptions to this, but there's a general attitude that some of the Freudian analyses um, are maybe not the most helpful and certainly not the most efficient ways uh, to change people. Um, but this, the, the idea of these opposing forces um, it still remains. In very broad terms, the relationship between the Freudian concepts and, and, and current instantiations is this recognition that we sometimes process things, as Anne was saying, from the top down, where we have really strong goals or ideas in mind, and we can change what it is we are thinking about or doing or feeling. And at other times when our, uh, our ways of interacting with the world come from the bottom up. So I'm glad that you talked about inner and outer objects of attention because uh, these this contrast between top down and bottom up is actually quite clear when it comes to research on attention in psychology. When you think about attention research, attention you know refers to what is currently in the forefront of our mind, and that can be driven by bottom up influences, which really refer to things that come from the environment, right? Things that come up through our five senses and make us say, "Someone just opened that door." There was a loud noise downstairs. It just got brighter in that corner of the room. There's something sitting on my hand that wasn't sitting there a few seconds ago. All of those things, our sensory apparatus says to us, something has changed. You need to focus what you're, what you're paying attention to, to this thing that's new. Top-down attention is when we make decisions about all of the things that are accessible to us, both internal and external, and we decide what it is that we will either look at in the environment or of all the things we're taking in, what we will focus upon, or of the things that exist only in our head that we will call up a particular memory, or we will attend to a particular thought that we're having, or we will lean into a particular image, as Anne was saying. So the top-down piece, again, is a little, is more intentional and controlled, and the bottom-up piece is a little bit more receptive and reactive. For me, it sometimes gets difficult to define top-down and bottom-up, and one of the things that grounds me a lot is the neuroscience of it. So especially within the domain of emotion, I consider bottom-up generated emotions are, again, things that come from our environment, things that we perceive with our eyes and our ears and our nose and our mouth and our skin. And top-down emotions are things that gener are generated from thoughts, right? So the parts of our brain that handle sensory information are very, very different than the parts of our brain that handle language, for example, even though not all thought occurs in language, a good deal of it does. And uh, the, the other grounding thing for neuroscience is that literally the bottom up generated information comes from the bottom or the back of your brain, which is also the evolutionarily older part of your brain, whereas the top down more controlled processing comes from literally the top or the front of your brain, which is the more recently evolved part of your brain as well. So how can we apply this to yeah. actually rehearsing, performing a role? Like how does this map on to all of the other things we've talked about? Yeah. And just speaking generally, when I think about what Practical Handbook for the Actor says, it talks about acting being twofold, that there's preparation and then there's the moment right? There's the intellectual analytical work where you as the actor slash character are attaching yourself to the words that the playwright has given you if this isn't improvised. And yet also in the 
moment in a rehearsal and in performance, you want to be open and receptive and listening to opportunities, to information that your, your scene partners are giving you. And that's more of the bottom up receptivity that I think Kateri was talking about. One thing I'm fascinated about that I hope that we tackle at some point is this idea of conflict, that all the objects of attention and your relationship to them do not all have to align. My character might be madly in love with this other character on stage, right? And that is a maybe a bottom up inner object. And yet it is utterly inappropriate culturally, mm-hmm. societally, because this is... Um, this is uh, not the man I'm married to, or this is not the man I'm supposed to be in love with, or I am high status and he is low status, or she is a woman and I'm not supposed to love women, that then there's a more top-down sensor, right, or inner Mm -hmm. object that says, no, 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 don't you ever dare say that. And that conflict, I think, is is fascinating for an actor to be negotiating, a character to be negotiating on stage. Totally. And I think conflict comes from a lot of places. And so you can certainly have top-down and bottom-up conflict. Um, You can also have conflicts between two goals that are both top-down, you know, or two different bottom-up things that are competing for your attention. Um, But it is true that you can create um, tension or, or conflict pretty easily. Um, if you want to sort of layer on something so you can think about, uh, maybe a comedic scene where someone's trying to give a very serious talk, um, but they've got, you know, itching powder on them or something, right? So you have this, this (laughs) conflict between your bodily state where you want to be very loosey goosey and get that, the, whatever is itching off of you, um, versus your top down goal of appearing in control, appearing authority, you know, that you have authority over the situation, you know, of maybe not giving in to your nemesis who put the itching powder in your underpants or whatever. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what, what and then you add, in my head this th- is No, wrong. I actually have an example. My husband and I are watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I love this sitcom. And th- last night, and they layered in a bunch of different circumstances that all had a time limit. Like mm-hmm. they only had 15 or 20 minutes to solve where the hacker was in the precinct, um, to get the garlic bread, to eat with the lasagna that was cooking in the microwave <laughs> for um, Rosa Diaz to uh, persuade Jocelyn, her girlfriend, not to break up with her. And so Rosa Diaz had these two conflicting uh, objects of attention, which was her girlfriend showed up at work breaking up with her, and she had to find the hacker. And she only had, like, she had 10 minutes to talk to the girlfriend, and she had 15 minutes to find the hacker. And this was funny. And then you layered in, there were maybe two other things, too. And all of a sudden, it's comedy, because you are fully engaged in how these characters are behaving in this very heightened circumstance. Well, and in that case, too, it sounds like some of the 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 breakup and the hacker are high stakes, but the garlic bread is relatively low stakes, and so it's every, it's often a comic relief to switch on a dime yes. to be like, "But we've been together for years, and it's turning brown on yes, the edges." Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Exactly. So Kateri had this brilliant uh, four step explanation of talking about top down, uh, bottom up, inner monologues both in rehearsal, prep, and then ultimately in performance. So let's start with top-down in in rehearsal. Yeah, I mean, I think the top-down work that happens in rehearsal or prep is probably the closest thing that happens in the entire process to head work, right? Really intellectual maybe even potentially somewhat emotionally removed, you know, from the life of the character. Not always, and and not that that's a good thing. Um, But really doing the work of talking through, um, you know, the story with the rest of the people in the company, 
um, doing some of the work we were talking about um, last episode in terms of the dramaturg filling out the factual details of the time period or of the geographical location or, um, you know, whatever, if, if anything is based on historical events, you know, all, all of that kind of information, um, you know, but but really laying out in a deliberative way, you know, what are what's all the information uh, that, that we need to sort of to fill out uh, the world and, and, and the things, the types of, what are the, what's the information my character knows? Yeah. The, in some ways, the, ob- I think, uh, uh, objective versus subjective is, is also a good binary. What is the objective information we're getting from the words on the page that the playwright has given us? And in this beginning of rehearsal process, we call it table work because you are usually sitting at a table. You are not, involving your body or your voice yet or the actor's instrument in the process. You are using imagination. You are using the sort of associative jumping off point where you're starting with the objective facts that the script is giving you and then you're maybe layering in uh, your fictional attachment to those. But it is, as Kateri said, uh, it's, it's intellectual and, and top-down. Yeah. And even in terms of diving into your character and not just the more objective world of the play... Um, there are some things that you might do to get to know your character that are a little bit more top-down in nature, right? That that are a little bit closer to what Anne was saying isn't the totality of what inner monologue is, but going through the exercise of potentially writing out the logical sequence of thoughts a character is having in a scene that aren't spoken. Definitely. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, I don't think that's something, I don't want to negate that as an exercise. I just don't think it's an end point in terms of the very vibrant and spontaneous and dynamic way that a character is in relationship to all the different things on stage. Yeah, like, I mean, where does actor journaling come into this process? I think we could even argue that that is perhaps top-down, where you have a very directed objective, which is I'm going to write in character on this piece of paper, and I'm going to literally write out these ideas. Yeah, I think it would be top-down. Okay. Uh, Yeah, and and especially because uh, top-down processes have the reputation of being slower than bottom-up. And so if you are writing out by hand in particular, that tends to be a bottleneck on processing speed, right? You have to decide what the character is saying, so you are filtering out real-time thoughts. I think the process of generating the thoughts is a little bit bottom-up, but having to write them down is imposing a top-down filter on what the output actually is. I love what you just said. That's news to me, that top-down processes tend to be slower than bottom up. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew that before. Mm-hmm. Great. Can we move on to bottom? Let's do bottom it. Bottom up. So as I was just saying, that exercise of going through what is my character thinking right now has some elements of bottom up to it, right? And so if you took out the writing component and you just went through, I am going to sort of just try to walk around in the head of my character for a little while and do whatever they would do and respond to things in real time, um, that would be a little bit more of a bottom-up preparatory activity. And so you might do that in the context of a scene with someone else. Like, is that, do you, like, when you direct, do you have people improv, like, in the scene and just say, put your scripts down and, like, just go? Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Where maybe they aren't off book and we don't yet know what the staging is and they they yeah. work their way through the basic, the given circumstances sure. of it. Yeah. And their TV shows made this way too. Yeah. Like Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm sure yeah. there's many more examples where we're negotiating some of the specifics, but not, not the specifics of the exact words um, or the exact staging. And we see what 
in improvisation, yeah, the actors create. And a lot, some of that will keep. Some of it will just fall by the wayside, but yeah. some of it is usually kept. I would call that bottom up. I also think we're, we're laying these out in a pure, we're separating out top down and bottom mm-hmm. up. And I'm just thinking a new thought for me is, is that they're, they're constantly integrated Always. in rehearsal. And that's what's particularly exciting. I was thinking last summer about building this whole gestural life of, the, of Queen Margaret and, and how it was also, an intellectual conversation with the movement director or with the director about what felt right, what, what, what physically felt right inside of my body and what visually how they were reading it yeah, felt right. Interesting. I like that we're starting separating, but I think in reality, they're often integrated and in the together. Brain, they're often integrated, right? Yeah. And I, and in terms of this, the rehearsal process, we also want to talk about the prep work you do outside of rehearsal. Yeah. So say you have four weeks of rehearsal and they're in the afternoon and evening or just the evening. Well, that leaves you time to live the rest of your life and also to work <laughs> on character outside. And we're, um, we're memorizing lines, which feels very top down to me mostly. Yeah. In terms of the the effort, the intellectual effort involved in understanding why the word choice and the sentence structure and why you're saying these and then moving from a very effortful thing into an automatic uh, relationship to it. And then there are these wonderful opportunities to work on... um, aspects of character, like just the physicality. What is the posture or shape of my character? How does my character walk through space? What are the gestures my character uses? What is my physical relationship to these people? Vocally, what are the qualities of this character? What is this character's inner monologue relationship to these objects of attention, to the other characters on stage, to the environment, to their wants, etc.? A lot of this work happens in a very very free associative stream of consciousness, yeah. messy. You're not, your brain is not really in control of where it jumps from yeah. here to here to here. You're in more and of an intuitive mode. Maybe. Intuitive mode. And that has value yeah. because that consolidates. I'm thinking about if this happens over several <laughs> days and you sleep in between, your brain does something to then cons- to hold on to the useful material yeah. and to discard the not useful material. Well, and what I love about you, di- what you just said is all of your examples were very embodied, right? Mm. And so I don't know if all psychological scientists would agree with me, um, but to me, it's fairly obvious that things that arise from the bottom up are more embodied, are more connected to the body because they come from the body. They come from our senses. And I think that when you are in a more bottom-up mode, you are more in tune with your body. You're paying attention to feedback more from them. And the top-down stuff, as you say, it's never entirely disconnected because it's always going on in the brain of somebody who has a body. But it's it has there's there's more of a potential for there to be um, a barrier, right? For there to be a quarantine where Mm -hmm. you're just thinking these thoughts in theory about what's going on and. If you want to, you could sit in a chair entirely still and go through those mental exercises, whereas the bottom-up stuff would be really difficult. You could do some amount of free association, some amount of letting your thoughts just build on each other and follow them, but I think that they're probably almost all enhanced by getting up on your, yes. your feet or moving around however else you move. Yeah, I'm ab- <laughs> I'm obsessed with this psychophysical continuum, which is Stanislavski language, but this, this relationship mm-hmm. of psychology to body. I just want to say one thing, which is the language of actors is verbs, and I mean that in a bunch of different ways. So we are physically moving, we're verbing on stage in relationship to each other. Our objectives, our wants are, are use verbs. That's the main 
that's the most nutritious word within the sentence of the objective. I want to persuade. I want to glorify Kateri so that she'll, so that she'll take me out for dinner. <laughs> um, uh, we use actioning, which is just uh, attaching transitive verbs to, to uh, certain lines that we speak. We talked about this in, in season one. And we play those verbs on our words, on our language, our text, so even the intellectual act mm-hmm. of, of speaking and, and attaching thought to that actually has verb, as action in it. And then those verbs really organically can, can fall into our bodies, too, so that we're just constantly in relationship to verbs, to activity. And even in terms of inner monologue, the character's relationship to these objects of attention, that relationship is active. I often want to do things to or with or because of my inner objects. Totally. I have a question for you and a a new thought observation. You know, I've often joked that I became a psychologist because I started taking acting classes in college and then my feedback was always, get out of your head, get out of your head. And I was like, no, I'm going to stay in my head. I'll just think about this stuff all the time. And... You know, I do think in some people there is a lot of fluidity between what they're experiencing bottom up and then their ability to like describe and systematize that top down and then go back and like actually enact it. You know, I think there are other people who are incredibly good at the intellectual analytical piece, but maybe not as good at embodying it themselves. And perhaps those people are more intellectuals. Maybe they're acting theorists. Maybe they're directors if they're good at getting other people to to do it, but maybe themselves, not that directors can't act, but you know what I mean? Like it would be possible to only Mm. to have a more top down heavy piece as a director, I think. And I suspect that there are some actors who are really good at the cycles of bottom up. They have really good feedback and they have, they're really good at translating, you know, um, what their character wants into something that's really readable on stage. And that if you ask them, like, you know, what's your verb right now? They'd be like, I, I, I don't know. I'm yeah. not sure. Like, the la- the language isn't important to them. The label yeah. isn't important to them. Whereas for some people, the label sparks and yeah. activates and you and you need it. And so I'm fascinated by, by this idea that maybe there's, a, among really good actors, you could have equally good actors, but some yep. of them might have a very, a, a very prolific discussion of what they were doing. And others might be like, I just got, I just did the thing. And I think you would, uh, I think a lot of actors, experienced actors would agree with Uta Hagen, respect for acting, where she constantly, each, each chapter is a different tool. And she says, you don't have to use this tool all the time. Right. Like you use substitution when you're stuck. If you are actually, if you can totally understand the, the dynamic of this relationship, you, on stage, the fictional one, you don't necessarily have to find a substitution mm-hmm. from your real life. Um, I've spoken to local actors who use actioning sparingly mm-hmm. when they're stuck. If they feel like they really understand, they're really grounded in a moment, they're not going to action it. They're going to mm-hmm. action a part of text where they don't actually understand yet what is going on or why they say what they're saying. That's super interesting, yeah. Should we move on to uh, during performance? Totally. Great. So for performance, let's start with top down. Do you want to do you want to say something? So the performance piece is maybe a little bit less new um, if you've been listening to season one, because when we talked about presence and mindfulness, I think we touched on both elements, right, of top down and bottom up of being focused in terms of not being distracted. Um, in terms of having your mind set on what the, on the world of the play and on, on what your your character sorts of, of needs, which is the more top down focus, um, but then also being a little bit free. 
So can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how the work you do in rehearsal in terms of the top-down, like setting the objects of attention, how that pays off in performance? Yeah, I th- and it, it goes back to what you're saying about what we can control and not control. I mm. think at the beginning stages of rehearsal, we are building an imaginative world, which involves an abundance of circumstances, some of which probably disagree with each other. And as you move through the rehearsal process and you get to performance, you whittle it down and you refine it into a, a, a set of things that is a more manageable size. However, on stage, I don't think you're necessarily negotiating all of that. So what I love about this idea of control and not control is an actor is in charge and can control how many objects of attention their character is negotiating over the course of a scene. And you could argue even in one moment, it's really just one thing, right? It might be my want, how I want to impact or what I want from this character on stage with me. Um, It could be a secret. It could be negotiating the conflict between uh, what I think or feel about this character versus what I feel comfortable sharing, And it could be conditioning forces like the character feels cold, the character has been hurt, the character is uh, overly excited, right? The character is drunk. So you're dealing with sort of physical sensations of the character. And dare I say, even though the goal is to create such a dynamic inner life of character that it is above and and dominates your actor inner experience, inner monologue, you're always going to be negotiating the actor inner monologue, some of which is distracting. However, the point I want to make here is I actually think as actor, I'm not always working, I'm not working 100% in character on stage. There's still part of me, whether it's 50%, 20%, I don't know, that is the actor, which is on this line, I'm going to move here. And that's actually going to help tell the story. Yeah. Or on this line, I'm going to do this. Or on this line, I want to make sure I look at this point in the audience. And I think that's healthy. I don't think in any way we're saying the character 100% takes over while you're on stage. That feels, that feels out of control. Yeah. And that what's interesting to me is you just put the character's conditioning forces into the domain of your focused objects of attention. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is that for the character, those are bottom up, right? Being cold is an environmental influence on the character. But as the actor, if you want to use that as part of your performance, you need to actually direct that from the top down to focus yeah. on it because... Again, the only the only other alternative would be to be that actor who goes to the stage manager and is like, you need to turn up the AC right. in here because my character's cold. Right. Like, that's ridiculous. That's not the point. And I think what's interesting about this uh, earlier today is it ties back into uh, what you were saying about uh, in episode one as, as words. If you have time to memorize and be fully memorized for an audition, not always necessary, your relationship to the words becomes automatic. Yeah. I think the more you rehearse these different uh, relationships to objects of attention, some of them become more automatic. Sure. So I think actually an actor with repetition, that that conditioning force where you are starting top-bottom and figuring out how to localize the cold and play the cold takes a lot of effort. Yeah. I think over repetition, it could be a little automated, which yeah. is great. And so then you're clearing your brain. Yes. You're deciding as an actor what fills your brain. <laughs> and it, 
it probably becomes automated in two ways, right? One is physical, like literal muscle memory. Like if you are, if you're using a shiver, right. And you've figured out how to top down induce a shiver, which can be tricky yeah. um, to do that. Like th- you could just kick that in. I just mm-hmm. snapped. That was that noise. <laughs> you could just kick that in in a snap. Um, and, and that would kick in, but there's also an attentional automaticity, right? Usually if a character is extremely cold, that is at least somewhat distracting for yeah. that character, right? Like that's a conflicting yeah. um, force with something else that's going on. So that you can automate that that piece of it too. That's interesting. And I was just thinking, because we also want to talk about bottom up during performance, and there's a few things to say here is that I think what we're saying is in some ways these th- these things that start top down, because we repeat them, almost feel bottom up in performance. I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer for that as a psychologist either. To me, there seems something different between something that is primarily driven from the bottom up and something that has become habitualized from the top down. Uh, I think you can min- you can have top down influences with yeah. less effort and that's a little bit different than it cuz it's still at least the way I've defined sort of top down and bottom up it still originates from you. Yeah. So my brain is exploding right now. I'm trying to give an example of these in my head and the last part I worked on is Soccer Mom and the Wolves and I'm I, I would like to try and give a couple of examples of top-down acting tools, top-down objects of attention that became so habituated that they just arrived. I didn't have to work on them. Okay. Some examples are the images in my head that the character had while speaking some of the lines. Sure. I think I had to, in rehearsal, effortfully give myself those, find yeah. them. And yet, in performance, they they showed up uh, automatically. Yeah, I think that's the point of rehearsal. I yeah. think you, you did you did good, Anne. <laughs> and even there's a moment where she really breaks down crying, which is not something I think I'm especially gifted at. There are some actors who are really good at that, but I found I I somehow found room for that to always work, mm. and I. I'm trying to articulate why. I've never really put words to it. But I think I put myself, there were enough, whatever relationship to objects of attention I had created, they were abundant enough or specific enough that I got to that physical recreation of that moment. Sure. So let's talk about bottom up. During performance. Yeah. Yeah? You want to start? I mean, I think a lot of the bottom-up stuff during performance is sort of more of the the improv reactivity that we were talking about, about not being so fixed. The danger of too much top-down is rigidity, right? And and imperviousness to environmental influences. Um, And there's even, it's interesting, if if you think about top-down and bottom-up from a purely cognitive domain, a a lot of times people think about top-down control as being really advantageous cognitively like the more you're able to control what you're thinking of what you remember what you imagine that that's all really good um but there are some aspects of cognitive processing that require flexibility that require adaptability that require openness to environmental input and so there isn't one uh right answer in in terms of always being controlled or always being open to input people who are too open to input you know a balloon explodes in a restaurant behind them and they burst into tears you know and people who are not open enough to input you know are sitting and signing the check in the restaurant and someone's going sir 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 and they don't you know they're not listening they're not receptive they're, they're, they're not responding so the the in performance one of the things that keeps things fresh is 
having enough authentic presence and attention to your environment that if something unexpected happens, you respond to it in character without having that be something that you had pre-planned and top-down worked out like, um, you know, if Cordelia drops her fan. <sighs> right. Does Cordelia have a fan? I don't know. She could. Okay. Depends yeah. on the production. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say if she drops her pen, but she sure, sure, almost that certainly could work doesn't too. have a pen. She might. Okay. She might be signing some papers. <laughs> <laughs> Just doing a little bit of light paperwork. <laughs> um, you know, so if something drops on the floor, you know, and, and, and this is one of the things that it's, it's really hard to maintain, especially in a long run. Yeah. Right. Like I think that especially as your objects of attention become habitualized, you sort of like go through a little bit. Um, and I've seen incredibly professional productions where something falls on the floor and nobody reaches to pick it up. Oh, I'm like, where me crazy. do you think you are? That, me, that happened in the show that I disliked this past weekend in oh. New York. I was like, pick up the egg that has fallen on the floor. Wow. The example I always go to in terms of how you have to stay receptive is say you're playing an objective on the other character that has to do with uh, cheering them up or angering them, right? You're trying to change their state of being, but they're already in that state of being. So if you want to cheer mm. someone up and they're already cheerful, then you have to adjust your objective. You have yeah. to adjust the analysis there. Um, that's one example. There are examples of something technically go, going wrong, and if the actors are creative about how they negotiate it, the audience, it draws the audience in even more. So years ago, I saw Shakespeare in the Park in Central Park, and one of the mics, one of the actors' mics went dead, and so they played a whole two-person scene with one person's mic. And mm. the mic, I think, stayed on his on his ear or on his cheek and the other person just stood close to him and the audience loved it because they were continuing to tell the story but they were dealing with the truth of the moment which is if he was not using that mic no one would be able to hear him because the space was so big so they were solving the problem and and audiences tend to rally around uh, moments like that you know and in some ways just to connect the rehearsal to the performance piece a lot of the top-down work that you do you know allows you to make that map of your inner and outer objects of attention that, as you were saying, does become easier to follow over time. It does yeah. become a little bit more grooved in terms of leading you through it. But that map does stay largely fixed, right, throughout different performances. Like, that is your character's journey. Um, so that's the part that's relatively invariant across uh -huh. a performance. The part that is more variable across performances is going to be some of the bottom-up stuff, which is responding to yeah. the actual moments that are happening, yeah. responding to a scene partner saying a line in a slightly different way. Right. I love that. So, so there's this, there's this really beautiful play called Rabbit Hole that Curious Theater did years ago, and Eric Sandvold played the husband, the father. And I, I think I was talking to him after, and he said, I always come into that scene at the end and there's a lot that's very sad about this play. And I always come into the circumstances and the character usually feels sad or I tend to play it, you know, in a way that leads the character, you know, it feels like it's a sad moment. And he said, tonight I came in, same circumstances, same line, same scene partner, and I felt uplifted. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's a receptive actor. Um, you, it could even be that the, 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 your scene partner is giving you in some ways yes. the same read. And yet where you as a human being mm -hmm. are at in that moment, you are going to feel more vulnerable. You're going to feel more reflective, more reactive. And you might 
respond in a different way that is still correct within the confines of this play world. It happens all the time. That's the goal. You never, ever want to exactly recreate the emotional experience of the character. It should be altered a yeah. little bit, at least. Yeah, and I think the major ups and downs, you know, if you think about a roller coaster, the major ups and downs are set, right? That's the play. Right. But the the way in which the car rattles around on the track and yeah. the way that your body jumps up and down and yeah. it's slammed against the different sides of it, yeah. that changes moment to moment and it changes where your center of gravity is and it changes based on who's in the car with you and... You know, and that is, I think that the the bottom up reactivity. You know, what what we have written in our outline is that performance bottom up is authentic reactivity to what's yeah. happening, and I think that authentic reactivity happens both on the level of the character and of the actor. Oh yeah, totally you know? agree. And you do have to. I will say, as an actor though, you do have to suppress some bottom up reactivity. Sure. Right. If you are delivering Shakespeare lines and you have a cough. You can't let every cough out or right. it'd be too disruptive. Right. Right. You know, so I think that there is some suppression of authentic creativity yes. as an actor. Yes. But really good actors, I think the examples you were just giving are of them using, like the microphone example is actually actor reactivity, but they're using it to boost character and, yeah. and storytelling and all of that. Yeah. And I think another example of suppress, suppressing actor reactivity is if your scene partner is not delivering what has been rehearsed in mm. rehearsal. You know, they're messing up the blocking. They keep forgetting a line. Yeah. They don't give you what you need at a particular moment. You're going to be pissed as an actor. <laughs> You're going to be frustrated, especially if it happens more than once. happened once, that's fine. You have to either somehow suppress that, unless there could be an example where you are supposed to be angry or frustrated, sure. and I could see that sort it. of generating. Yes. Um, but... but uh, this idea of controlling, I think over time, an experienced actor is able to suppress or set aside or submerge some actor inner monologue mm -hmm. that is is not useful or negotiate and decipher and determine what part of their own human inner monologue is useful in the scene and what isn't. Yeah. And I think that a big, again, that this is the relationship between the top down and the bottom up again is the stronger your focus map I keep picturing this like literal map that almost looks like a subway map with like lines between dots. And sometimes the dots are really close together and sometimes they're farther apart. Like the stronger your focus map that you've developed in rehearsal that you're following in performance. And then you can create a little bit of a buffer around the map to allow for reactivity to things that happen to the character. Yeah. You know, the less that you might be tempted to react as an actor to those yeah. things that, that catch your attention bottom up. And I also think in rehearsal there's an opportunity to figure out where that boundary is. So I've had many experiences, mm. like my habit as an actor is to be really loud, right? To be mm. vocally, to take up a lot of space vocally and sometimes physically. Now that often is, serves me well, but there are times in rehearsal where I'll go too far with that, right? And the director will say, that's a little, right? We don't need it to be that angry or we don't need it to be that whatever or like pull back on that action. And I think that's... That's a really good measure of kind of how y how your relationship to these objects of tension, how much flexibility there is, how much spontaneity, how much um, how much changeability, variability there is, and when you've really gone too far, yeah, or on the other way, not really gone far enough in terms yeah. of the storytelling. It just occurred to me now that 
there are, because we're all always influenced by top down and bottom up, it might be helpful to think of different characters as being a little bit more top down driven or a little bit more bottom up driven. Yeah. Right. And so again, this is where the usefulness of the Freud analogies come into, right? Like some people are super id driven. Yeah. Um, and so it might actually be along the same lines as the personality episode, like it might be a helpful window into character to think of where your character falls on a spectrum of yes. reactive versus control. I love that. Um, and that might also be a really important bridge when you are playing a character who is a little different than you. Um, because, yeah, like I was saying before, a, a lot of actors might just have a personal style of being a little bit more intellectual about it, but they might be playing a very reactive um, environmentally susceptible character yeah. versus um, actors themselves who are a little bit more bottom up but are playing a very deliberative character that that might be a window into that. I love that you said that. I think that's very, very, very true. Well, good. Thanks for listening. Next up, we're going to continue the conversation with two local professional actors. Their names are Mayor Trevathan and Rodney Lizcano. Keep listening. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Today, we are so very lucky to be joined by not one but two guests to help us f more fully flesh out the concept of inner monologue and top sound and bottom up attention. So uh, I have the privilege of being able to introduce Mayor Trevathan. Mayor loves unconventional theater. And recently she directed a micro theater production in a bookstore as part of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts' off center production Bite Size. She also worked with architects in India to create site-specific performance art. Hmm. As Associate Artistic Director of a local theater company in Boulder, Colorado, Mayor develops new works with a mix of community members and theatricians and organizes a monthly professional development program for actors and directors. Mayor has also narrated over 550 audiobooks and teaches voiceover at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. And I have the pleasure of introducing Rodney Lizcano. Rodney has spent 16 seasons with the Denver Center Theatre Company in roles in The Constant Wife, Book of Will, American Mariachi, Hamlet, American Night, Merchant of Venice, Spinning into Butter, Tempest, Gross Indecency, and The Winter's Tale. Other theaters he's performed with include the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, you hopefully have seen him in Richard III as Richard III, Much Ado About Nothing, Othello, Henry V, The Tempest, Merry Wives of Windsor, Henry IV, Parts One and Two, Equivocation and Cymbeline, also The Old Globe, Orlando Shakespeare Theater, Dallas Shakespeare, Theater Aspen, Arvada Center, Boulder Ensemble Theater Company, Local Theater Company, and Off-Broadway with Actors Ensemble Theater and Dreamscape Theater Company. He trained both at Southern Methodist University and the National Theatre Conservatory. And all three of us are in Romeo and Juliet this summer. <laughs> Yay! Rodney's abridged bias. So we are thrilled to have not one, but both of you here. Uh, for me personally, because I admire you both as actors, and more currently, because you are both in a show at the Denver Center, Off Center, called Between Us. Uh, and because of the nature of this show, I thought you'd be especially good guests to talk about inner monologue and all the different brain activity going on while you're performing. So I would love to start by both of you in your own way uh, explaining what this show is. Great. Uh, so 
between us is a trio of shows, um, each with its own individual ticketing. So one could elect to go to all three, but could also elect to just go to one. And Rodney and I are in uh, two separate shows of that trio. The show that I am doing is called Blind Date. And, um, oh, it's so fun to actually get to tell people what this is because this will air after we've closed. We've had to be sworn to secrecy. Um, hush, hush for a hush, while. Hush, hush, yeah. So a blind date, uh, an audience member would uh, buy a ticket and then start um, getting uh, uh, communication from the theater, but ostensibly through our mutual friend, Sarah, who has set us up on this blind date that occurs at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. Uh, and so on their show date, they would show up at a particular time and a particular location, which um, we communicate via texting. Uh, and we have a, a script that takes us on a blind date through the Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, I, I describe it as being about 30% script, 30% the um, improv inspired by the audience member themselves, and about 30%, or sorry, a third, I should say, not 30, mm -hmm. 30, 30, a third, a third, a third. Um, the last third being just the environment, the other people who are at the MCA that given day and the art that people are exposed to. Mm -hmm. And then Rodney. So my, um, my um, immersive experience is more a two-on-one. So I actually have two people in uh, my immersive experience, and it's called the whiskey tasting. And so two individuals will come in, either strangers or paired. You buy a single ticket or two tickets to my show, and the event surrounds itself around a whiskey tasting. So we are actually pouring four mm. different types of whiskeys. <laughs> um, can't come to a whiskey tasting without tasting a little yeah. bit. Um, so ours is a little bit more scripted. Yeah. I would say more 66% scripted <laughs> because we do like to hit on all the topics of each whiskey, describe them, um, engage them in both sensory smelling and tasting, give either an anecdote anecdote about that whiskey or its historical reference or why it's important. Um, and then peppered throughout those, we engage with the audience as to how they're experiencing the whiskey, um, not only by their senses, but um, how these images might have come up in their past, in either childhood or in relationships. Um, and so that takes about an entire hour's worth of exploration. Um, my job as the bartender um, is to not only um, inform them about the whiskeys that we're going to taste, that they're going to taste, um, but also play a little bit of a connector between the two um, audience members. If they know each other, we have a section that's called the stranger game where we lean into the aspect where all right, this event works a little bit better if we pretend not to know each other. And so we set up the rules very quickly and say, hey, for this evening, let's pretend that, for example, this person doesn't know this person, and we're going to be sharing things about ourselves that um, we may or may not know about each other, and then explore, explore, explore. Um, which is then the 33% yeah. of the non-scripted material is really engaging and dropping the actor bartender mode and becoming very human and being inquisitive about 
those people and taking social cues about what they say and keep exploring, exploring, and just finding nuggets of information that we can then hold on to and keep launching the script. I attended Whiskey Tasting, not with Rodney, uh, but one of his um, cohorts, uh, castmates, I attended on Sunday. And so I can also say that you've um, got the job of not just doing some um, deep exploration and, and guiding of the audience, but also tremendous listening and um, having to retain the information mm. that you gather so that it uh, reappears and is woven through. It's true. So all the nuggets that all the nuggets that we we uh, nuggets of information that they have are willing to divulge, we kind of have to file it in the memory bank because at the end, the fourth whiskey that we um, we give to them, we actually present it as if it's their um, their memorial, and we're eulogizing wow. them. So not only do we have to take all those cues from the beginning of the play and try to insert them in new text the last 10 minutes of the play, but we also asked the other partner in that scene to eulogize them as well. And so they, that, there's a lot of listening going on. Mm. Tons of listening going on. So given that uh, it's only either a third or two-thirds scripted, how do you rehearse for such a thing? Uh, were there different phases of, of purely learning the script and then starting to interact with, with pretend audience members or, or like what was the process like of learning to find that that balance of the stuff you prepared and the stuff that you respond to on the fly? Yes, I think it was different for each of the three shows. Um, in my instance, for Blind Date, the director, Lauren Ludwig, um, has a, a, a foundational rehearsal foundation that I think she frequently uses for this kind of work, which is partly Meisner or Meisner-esque, so very much about what is actually happening with your scene partner, which ultimately for our show is the audience member, uh, and being able to to um, uh, make uh, quick decisions about what you're reading and, and being very perceptive about it, building off of that information. And she also uses viewpoints um, so that one keeps, uh, which also is highly um, improvisational, but is a more full body experience mm -hmm. of that so that we don't just become um, analytical talking heads in the course of it. And, and so we did that and a whole lot of improvising what... Um, the character, the character's name is Taylor, um, regardless of which of the four actors who plays mm -hmm. the role. Who, um, so uh, any gender, right? Um, uh, Taylor was then put into improvisatory situations in the rehearsal room. And in that, um, in doing so, all four of us actors were able to create backstory, you know, sort of go, oh, yes, that moment in which we met the sister and there was this conflict. That is so Taylor, whoever, whoever's Taylor it is. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it wasn't a cerebral event at all, but it feels as if, well, we actually lived that experience and then that gets to be in the, the, the bank's um, even if it doesn't make it into the script itself, that for that 30% that is mm -hmm. improvisatory, there's some information to draw from. And then, yes, we layered in um, test audience members just mm. right away. As soon as we were able to um, have a script and put it in the museum, 
we started having test audience members, whether that was an unlucky stage manager or... (laughs) (laughs) And Rodney, what was your process? Um, Well, because we do hit on four four different types of whiskeys, we we also had some responsibility to honor what we were presenting. And so there was a lot of research uh, that had to go in on not only the whiskey, but, you know, how people um, experience the whiskey. So more dramaturgical work for that um, to build the script. And so we knew how to describe them. We knew to how to give them the historical background. Um, and the portion of that script just kind of lended itself, just because of the research, already kind of wrote itself. And then we decided, all right, so what's the most interesting thing about this whiskey that we could maybe pull or extract a story or engage an audience member with. Um, And so we broke it down into someone like X. Uh (laughs) Like uh Act One Uh is a whiskey that goes all the way back to the beginning, how whiskey was first made. Right. Um, And we'll give them a little historical background on that first whiskey. But at the same time, we're also trying to find out how these people came to be as far as where did they grow up? uh, How far have they traveled? We're talking about the um, we used terroir a lot. Our our fibers. Where did we grow up? Uh What influenced us? Very simple things like what are the fun things we did? In the beginning, and so we correlate that whiskey with their first experience. It took me a second. I now think I know what you mean by ter- that word, terroir. which is a lick, which is it's the earth, right? The earth. Yeah, it's I'm how we're made. It how, to how we're, we're made. made. How okay. we're influenced. What influenced us from the beginning up into where we are, um, and then we do that with every kind of uh, every each whiskey. So then Act Two is about journeys, and we present a whiskey that comes from Japan. Um, which is blows people's minds away because everybody thinks it's Scottish or American or Irish. And so we present whiskey in a different way and then explore journeys. And not only the whiskey's journey, but the p- people themselves. Yeah. And um, again, try to extract nuggets of information. And we do that through the X3 and 4 that eventually end up with the... Um, the fourth, which is eulogizing them. Uh, so the script is much more healthy, you know, memorized scripted material. Um, and then and then we just took the notes as to what we want to extract from them. And so the test audiences were extremely important and helpful for us um, because specificity uh-huh. <laughs> ended up being the key here. Because we can talk to people and we can go on tangents about conversations and we can go around circles and really talk about nothing for a really long time but we don't because it's an hour-long show Mm -hmm. and so we actually have to be very cognizant Mm -hmm. and lean into specificity the most so given that this show is so is built so differently from many shows and probably all shows other shows you've done or or most of the other shows you've done given that 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 audience is bigger and farther away how did your brain, how did your objects of attention, what you were thinking about, how did that feel different w- with this particular experience than a more traditional experience? The um, mental agility that that one has to have was a way that I have never worked with before. You know, as I, I described to my students, once you're on the train, once the lights go up, you're on that train and you know the arc, you know the points you need to hit. And so you go on the journey, right? There's a natural progression when you do a play. 
Um, but in this type of immersive experience, y- your mind is not only juggling, it's juggling A, being responsible for the one hour show, you're being responsible for the text, you're also responsible for this audience engagement, and then the cohesiveness of the evening mm-hmm. as well. Um, you know, coming into the experience and meeting two new strangers and having to take the temperature of those two people very, very quickly and decide, is this going to be a light, fun show? Or can we lean into some more empathy and sympathy? Because the show has the ability to go in a few directions. And so we as the performer have to take those cues very quickly. And so the mind is consistently... And more surprise, surprises, presumably, because those audience members are bringing in uh, energy and material. We have um, to learn their energy, and, learn their and, energy. And, yeah. and, and know to play with it or yeah. control, control it, it or uh-huh. guide it. And uh-huh. I like guiding more because we actually walk in and saying, hi, I'm your whiskey guide. So it all encompasses a lot. Not only am I going to be your guide about the whiskey experience, but hopefully a guide into the hour-long experience. And hopefully set up some trust, because trust is a big Mm -hmm. thing Uh um, in all of our pieces, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Lauren, um, the director-writer of Blind Date, talks about there being edges to the piece that um, should be invisible, to the audience that, you know, ideally they never actually bump up against the mm-hmm. edge of it, but that we are craftily guiding them to keep within. They, they have a whole lot of agency, the audience member, but that there actually is a path. I, I think blind date is uh, probably the, the least constrained in its um, structure of the three pieces. So um, there are plot points that plan A is they unravel and they they, um, are exposed in a particular order. But if an audience member really wants to talk about, for example, the afterlife, um, which is a component that we get to in Blind Date, if they really want to talk about that in the first 10 minutes of our show... um, then I, I'm going to go there and follow their lead, and that content that is scripted will come up at that moment. And so there's some wonderful, fun problem-solving to, um, to happen in the moment of thinking, okay, what did I not say here that I would normally say 10 minutes in? Mm-hmm. Is that important to weave in elsewhere? And if so, how am I going to grab that opportunity? Um, And what does it mean 30 minutes in when I was going to talk about the afterlife? What else happens there instead? All while um, trying to have it come up in a more or less organic way so that it feels like they're on a blind date. And there are a couple of places for blind date that Lauren has suggested should feel a little jarring for the audience member, that the and the the performance does assert itself a little bit more. But we have found that um, repeatedly for Blind Date, we have people who, uh, audience members who it's so untraditional, non-traditional, that they, uh, uh, some audience members never quite get what happened to them. So I had a, a guy recently who thought he was on a date with me, that somehow like the Denver Center was a matchmaking service. <laughs> said like, well, this person bought a ticket and this person bought a ticket for the same time. Let's put them together. I don't, I'm not sure how it worked in his yeah. brain. But several people have been 
confused because they have so much agency and they're not used to that. And Blind Date is also built in a way so that there's not a front of house, right. you know, here is the beginning. Here, here is very clearly your um, guidance that is happening outside of the world of the play. And here now it's you walk through a portal and you're in the play. You know, it's it's yeah. very blurry. Yeah. There, there are, we talked a little bit about suspension of disbelief and there are so many cultural cues, right, to get you into that mode of having to buy a ticket, going through a different entrance than the performers, having there be a physical barrier, usually in the curtain. Not everyone uses a curtain these days, but there's so Space. many cues that says, this is where you go and you are separated from yeah. the people up here. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, it, from what I understand, I think that's a lot of off-center's goal is to like disrupt that. Well, and I think this is the most disruptive that it has been Charlie Miller um, uh, at the at off center for um, at DCPA uh, was particularly interested in learning just how far you can go with giving the audience agency while still having something of a satisfying narrative mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes as an actor. I have to navigate, especially in rehearsals, sometimes I can combine them in performance, hopefully I can, the listening responsibility of an actor and the active pursuing mm. objective speaking my text. Right. Sometimes I struggle or it takes repetition to actually be doing both of those things at once. Mm -hmm. And I imagine in your position in these particular roles, and I also wonder for the audience member, if you are constantly having to do both mm -hmm. of those at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. That you're taking in information and you're speaking, you're, you're sticking to the script, uh, or you're allowing them to improvise, you're allowing them to speak for a period of time. And at the same time, your brain is working to make sure they don't go over four and a half minutes or five minutes. That's exactly That it, it just seems so yep. rigorous. Yeah, um, and it is. I it's, a, it's, a, it's a new skill, because for those of us who, who, who are able to do plays and get on the train, as I said, we know how to navigate that, right? We've done enough of those experiences where we kind of know the path, right? And so this is was completely new for me. I have never done immersive experience. I didn't know what was A, required of me in the beginning or how I would have to apply new tools and so this has been a absolutely brand new way of working for me. And so to get comfortable enough to a point where not only was I engaging with the audience and actually having as much fun as the audience, because they're having a lot of fun, but being yeah. responsible for the show can also be uh, unnerving to a sense because of that responsibility. Um, so I would say for me, it took me weeks to, and I'm not even going to say master because it's it's such a moving target, uh -huh. but that I'm comfortable enough now with our 55-minute show to say, all right, in this section, this is my responsibility, and this is how I can follow this. I have transitional text, which I can I can uh -huh. use, uh -huh. right? And I know how to apply because I've done plays before. And then also try to uh, just help navigate and guide. And for me, that is a, a completely new way of working. Um, I still don't know if I can fully articulate the actor-performer experience sure. of it, other than I have never done anything like this before, and it is so... 
it is it's satisfying because <laughs> it's it's a fun to work this way at this point of my career. Yeah. Um, old dog, new tricks, right? <laughs> but it's also a new entertainment um, venue that people want to see. And so if the audience wants to see it, then we have to, as right. performers, now apply ourselves right. to learn how to work this way. And it draws a different demographic, I'm it's finding, for Blind Date. Are you finding that as well, Absolutely. Rodney? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and Which is kind of fun because many of the people who are attending Blind Date are not um, habitualized to the rules of theater. Or and, traditional theater. Uh, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. They're not used to going to see a two-and-a-half-hour play where they sit right. down. For them, their theater right. experience, they want more engagement. They want more interaction. They want more, um, I don't know, they want to be more tactile in yeah. their theater experience. And all three of our shows offer that. And there's there aren't consistent uh, codes of behavior established for the audience in immersive theater. So I think in that way, and, and so some of that is part of the um, the actor's inner monologue is assessing, okay, what do they, what does your audience member think the codes of behavior are here versus what we need the code of behavior to be or how adaptable can we be to what their expectation is or lack thereof. Um, but it's, uh, it, I think that also, um, that lack of, um, uh, of the rules being codified also is helpful in drawing people who don't necessarily come to theater. That if theater feels like a claustrophobic experience or a um, exclusive experience to some people, heading to MCA for a blind date doesn't trigger that right, same sort right. of yeah fear. Uh, of the things that you've learned during this process, is there anything that you are going to? Can you talk about any specific tools you're going to take into a more non, uh, a more traditional rehearsal process? I mean, well, I'm anxious to get back into a straight play mm -hmm. to actually discover that. Yes. I don't know that yet, um, but we will be going into uh, a production here pretty soon. And so I'm going to be interested in how how differently I listen yeah. or how differently my uh, instincts will kick in because of that. Yeah. And letting go, trying to let go some of that interactiveness but then use the scripted text to almost achieve the same. Yeah. Uh, if that makes any sense, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's now I'm going to use the words that I have on the page and explore them maybe in the same way mm -hmm. that I try to interact. So maybe like it's, anything could happen, your scene partner. Well, I think it's going to be more, I mean, I think it'll be more nonverbal exploration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, like I said, we are mm -hmm. adhered to script and playwrights' words, and so now I wonder if there's going to be n more nonverbal cueing that I might lean into. And what I thought you were saying was that maybe the same word you you've now experienced how the exact same text can function in so many different ways on so many different journeys that maybe there might be a wider variety of, of choices or options or for the same chunk of text that you might realize, oh, I can accomplish eight different things mm -hmm. in, you know, in, in mm -hmm. this couplet or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't no, know. I think that's true. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a great observation. One thing that um, I've been contemplating, and, and like Rodney, I'm, I, I'm anxious to see just by um, experience what it is that transfers over, um, 
but I've been contemplating for the past few years, uh, I've been battling some stage fright in traditional settings. I've, I've continued to perform and sometimes for really big houses and sometimes in really big roles, but there's been an inner monologue that is um, not necessarily helpful of, you know, oh, don't forget your line, you know, but mm-hmm. that's that's the main part. Don't forget your line. Um, and that is a, um, that's an inner monologue that is very disruptive to having uh, flow and attachment connection to your scene partner. It, it interrupts good listening. Um, and the, there's no room for that in the work that we're doing now. There's also not an, an external audience, so you're not sitting just in observance. So that that's mm. a difference as well. And once that component is back in a traditional setting, I'm interested to see if two months of nine shows a week of um, this uh, uh, laser focus connection to the audience member slash scene partner, if that does help to kick out some of the unhealthy um, uh, inner monologue that I've been battling mm-hmm. the last few years. Well, that's the that's one ingredient that is missing from the immersive is that we always say the audience is the last cast member, right. you know, in a production, yeah. and we don't have someone w- looking into us. Yeah. All the players in that one hour are only the players, and it's only our experience, and never do we have the same show or have the very same experience, and so. Yeah, I, I like having let, letting go of the reins. Mm-hmm. As a, like uh, the only thing I can r- relate it to is playing Richard last summer, where I felt like you know I had to hold on to the reins and guide the audience and you know help them be on my journey. But that responsibility isn't here. My responsibility mm-hmm. is to engage in a more human way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of evolves into the experience because every show is different. Mm. Every single mm. show mm-hmm. is different. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thrilled that you brought up stage fright. Thank you. <laughs> and I wonder it's if... Real. It's, real. it's real. It's real. It's <laughs> real. And I wonder if there's a way to trick our actor brains into being so busy, and I guess I mean busy in mm-hmm. a good way, yeah, yeah. with things that root us into character and circumstance and focus and listening right. and really specific things that change a little bit every time you're doing it so that those negative distractions, that actor brain, the monkey brain is mm-hmm. at bay. Yeah. Uh, we've all over experience learned how to do it, but I think there's yeah. something really special about the experience you're having now, which is your brain has no room yeah. to let that in. So even when in a more traditional setting, when maybe there is room in your brain, mm-hmm. how do we not give it room right. is, is a question I like to try and answer. Yeah. Uh, I have I've had a I've had a, an interesting experience not only doing the immersives but I'm also teaching at the same time, and so I find the my experience is bleeding into how I'm also speaking to actors mm-hmm. about it. And one yeah. of the things that I always tell my actors is just leap, just leap, or just <sighs> don't be afraid to swim in the deep end. And I have consistently said that. To many students, but never have truly applied it on a <laughs> daily ba- on a daily basis. Where I get ready for my show and I get my suitcases and my my bottles of booze, <laughs> and I have 
probably less than two minutes to mentally prepare uh-huh. in the different way that I would in a another role. And so I have those t- two minutes and try to center as much as I can. But at the end of the day, I just have to leap. Mm-hmm. I have to leap and trust. Um, I, I fear, I, I mean, I feel that there there still will be stage fright in the future. But again, it'll be interesting yeah. to see how, how will I do, how well I will, you know, now yeah. contain it. Yeah. I wonder how much... Um, it's about summoning beginner's mind uh, because it, with the work that Rodney and I are doing right now, we uh, there will always be something new coming at us. And in traditional theater, once you're open and, you know, may, maybe not even on opening night, but certainly by a couple of weeks into a run, you've settled into the path really comfortably. And there's something wonderful about um, an element of at least the lines being able to be really on autopilot, right? But um, uh, how does one stay awake to what's new when the thing that is most new is the different audience each mm-hmm. night? And and, and um, if you hook into that as the thing that is new and there's an uh, over... If, there's, if the awareness is too focused on the audience, I think that just um, exacerbates the, the issue with the, the cluttered inner monologue versus the... Um, the busy mm-hmm. inner monologue. Yeah. I was I was more terrified in rehearsal than I am performing it mm-hmm. in a way because I couldn't my I could not get my mind around a doing a one hour show, being responsible for it, but then also collectively putting this four act piece in my head. That's where my terror mm-hmm. personally came in, and then it took about you know a week with test audiences and previews for it to settle in a way where I was comfortable getting on the journey mm. and, and promoting that. But holy guacamole. I mean, we're, I'm, I'm talking about being at home, memorizing the lines that I'm supposed to the next day and going, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and uh, the other two bartenders, we call each other the bartenders. Yeah. There's three. And we all, I, I, we all have had the same experience differently, <laughs> but the terror of walking in and coming with a show that has such loose edges. You're not is, in control. Is, is, is mm-hmm. right where I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I know I know what points I need to hit. I know what arguments I need, you know, in a traditional play. And this one has such, yeah. it's such a, a, an amoeba of a performance. Um, but there's, you know, now there's joy in doing it and there's joy in connecting with another two, you know, humans. Uh, we've talked a lot about listening, and I always reread chapters from Uta Hagen's Respect for Acting. It's one of my favorite books, and I use it in various acting classes. And in The Five Senses, she talks about how to actually listen on stage. And she says, of course, you can't take in every single word or the meaning of every word and all of the intonation and tone and, and color and information you're getting in the vocal information that isn't the words. But she talks about specificity, and I've been... Just I read that maybe a week ago, thinking about hon- trying to listen specifically to particular words and particular ways that the person is giving me information. How do you listen well or successfully? What are you specifically doing to listen successfully? Hmm, what a great question that I, I have not 
contemplated previously. I, yeah, I, I uh, hopefully something will bubble sure. up for me that's a little more poignant. But a thing that um, is unique to this experience um, is the nuanced body language as, as Rodney talks about uh, our needing to assess um, where an audience member will be willing to go with us, where, where their edges are and, um, uh, and employing the technique as a performer of mirroring in order to, um, to, put our audience members more at ease so that maybe the edges expand a little bit, which is not an answer to your question, Anna. It's just a thing that came up as you were talking. Actually, it is because when you mimic, you understand what they're going through, right? Mm. There's a whole theory of empathy Empathy. that's built around mimicry. And so if someone has their air is hunched over with their arms crossed, if you do that, you go, oh, I get how they're feeling right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yep. And when I say listening, I don't just mean what they're saying, but what yeah. their whole mm-hmm. body and being is giving yeah. you. Yeah. 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 What do you think, Rodney? Um, I do. I, yeah. Those, those physical and social cues are, are, are big. Uh, um, and I talked about it before, you know, our fourth I put this in quotes, you can't see this. Our fourth act, which is the eulogy, um, as soon as I begin, what, or they're realizing what we're doing, what I'm doing in that moment, and it's usually the gentlemen who do this arm cross, mm-hmm. and they're like, mm, I don't know where I want to go. But I have the option to also relieve that with levity. And so, okay, so this eulogy is actually going to be playful. It's not going to be... You know, it's not going to be as dark and somber. However, there are people who are willing to go there. Mm-hmm. And that's actually much more interesting for me because then the rules fall out a little bit. And they realize, oh, I see what we're trying to do here. And they'll say, oh, if I didn't have an opportunity to say this again, this is what I would like to say. Mm-hmm. And those are lovely. Those are lovely experiences. But that's not to say that levity, the sure. levity portions aren't as fun because then, then we make it uh, a celebration. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a celebration of both potentially somber and, and playful yeah. Um, as well. But yeah, listening is huge in mine as well. Um, there are, in the beginning, when we talk about um, where we grew up, you know, people, um, and this is a, this is a huge um, directorial um, perspective from uh, Amanda Berg Wilson, who was our director for this, is that when you find that nugget, do not be afraid to continue to explore. And one of the biggest things that people will bring up is um, old grandparents' homes or pieces of furniture that remind them of something. And when that memory is so clear, we just we just let them go. What about mm. this attic? What happened in this mm. attic? Or my grandmother always had licorice in her purse. This, li- this whiskey reminds me of when grandma used to give us licorice. And if you just keep nudging and keep nudging, they provide a huge portion of the script for us without them even thinking about it. So listening, yes, but listening and then also delving and oh so carefully and oh so strategically Mm -hmm. to try to get to those points. And then there's some people who 
for whatever reason aren't able to do that and then okay again we have we have the text to fall back on it, it the the show changes i think so many people are desperate to be seen mm. and heard deeply right and now. understood yeah. and understood mm-hmm. but yes and 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 um and accepted mm-hmm. um I find there's some extended eye contact in Blind Date. And um, sometimes following it, Taylor is just moved, my Taylor is just moved to say to somebody, I see you. And frequently that prompts tears. Hmm. Because I think it can be so... Simple, I think understanding and and um, acceptance, of course, is huge. But I think even falling short of that, just somebody knowing that they've been witnessed, regardless of how they've been found by the you know judge and jury, just knowing that that information about them has been taken in, I think is huge. So to get back to maybe a more on task um, answer to what you were asking Anne about how does one listen well I think it's about focus I think it's about it mattering to you as a performer that um, you are just a component of what is happening and that's if we think about an actor's responsibility one of one of them being receptivity it's hard for me sometimes when I've got all my stuff that I'm doing and using and working and the words and the staging and the actioning and blah, 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 to actually at the same time be receptive to what other people are giving me. I feel yeah. like that's just built into the cake of the work you're doing right now. You have to. Mm-hmm. But we can get lazy about that yes. in more traditional. So to keep, that's actually what I'm walking away with right now from this conversation is to keep practicing. Yeah. Uh, being receptive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Active listening. <laughs> Active listening. Mm-hmm. Active listening. Passive listening. Yeah. I don't know, right? It's Both are equally important. I-, I have one more question. I'm so glad you're both here. You talked about preparation. My pre-show preparation is a really big part of my feeling ready when I walk on stage, when the show starts, or whenever I enter. How do you get your head in the game before, you know, in the half an hour, hour, five hours, whatever, before the show starts? It varies for me uh, from role to role. Um, if it's a if it's a if it's a juggernaut, um, I will I I will have to seclude myself mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for for a moment. Um, the way that our show worked last year is that the show started. Uh, the the entire cast, the ensemble, was actually already on stage before I even hit stage. So I had I had a very very long moment to mentally prepare, but also listen to what everyone's mm. doing on stage as well. So I'm hearing the world of the play over the monitors, um, uh, and then when I get up to the stage. Um, I'm entering what's already created. And so there's a little bit of like, I don't have to, yes, I say the first words of the play in Richard III, but the play's already started. And so I get to, I get to just gently walk in and begin the play. Um, And then if it's something very light and fluffy, I like levity in the, in the Mm -hmm. dressing room as well. And so I'll joke around with my, you know, my, my roommates in the dressing room and, and create that. But I'll also take a very, you know, yeah. 
honest moment before I hit the stage to center and focus and listen. I always, I like listening to the scene that's happening right before I come on um, yeah. um, and listen to the audience. I love listening to the audience over the monitor um, in the wings um, and, 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 and the anticipation is what actually drives me uh, to, to break the, to break the leg, to yeah. break the wing. Yeah. Like, and then it's, you know, yeah. and then it's exciting. Yeah. yeah um, if it's quite an intense role, I'll usually, uh, if I'm able to do something quite physical before going on stage, because that sort of, um, bypasses my unhealthy inner monologue mm-hmm. that can happen mm-hmm. in the wings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also a fan, I don't think I'm misattributing this. I think it's later career Stanislavski that is grab your first couple of lines, your first couple of physical actions, go on stage and listen. Um, uh, so those in a traditional setting are, are what I strive for. Um, in Blind Date, there is no off stage. We are exposed the entire time. There's no green room. Um, and uh, that's been very interesting so that there's no like, humana, 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 you know, there's no, there's no, there's no doing wild gymnastics um, backstage to put yourself <laughs> in the so mode. And I'm a believer in the wild gymnastics, but it's impossible <laughs> standing in the middle of MCA. The ritual's gone. The ritual Our gone. ritual yes. is gone. Yeah. What we do yeah. in the theater is gone completely. Mm-hmm. And so, right. Yeah. That is really terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a point in uh, Blind Date in which it's revealed that Taylor's mother passed away two weeks ago. And in that moment, the tears just fly out of us. And to not have had, you know, typically if I were doing that, if I knew that that moment was coming up in 20 minutes after I walk on stage, I think I would be, um, you know, creating a, a cocoon of silence and focus around me and trying to, you know, really mine my my own experience, Mare's own experience. And there's just no spot for that. So a thing that that Lauren said is, you know, just let that pass through you as you're as you're standing waiting for your date to to show up. Just give yourself a little, you know, let that be a, a thought that that is part of the inner monologue is that mom died yeah. two weeks ago, and that has been enough. I think because we are we are just forced to live in the moment. Great. Thank you so much for coming. It's been super interesting. I have 80 million more questions, but Me too. We'll, we'll pause. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. Hey. Thank you both. <laughs> Love your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We want to thank Jonathan Howard, our sound engineer, for always doing amazing work. We and couldn't do this without you. And, and webmaster and composer. Amazing person. <laughs> and we also want to thank DU for providing us with two grants. Without them, we could not make this podcast. The first one is the CAMP, Creative Arts Materials Fund, and the FRF, the Faculty Research Fund. Awesome. And if you like what you're hearing, um, feel free to go into iTunes, which is where most of you are listening, and uh, give us a quick rating or uh, subscribe to us because Apple keeps track of those things. And so you'll help other people find us if you do those two things. Thanks a lot. Bye.